yes, yes, yes. In this episode of Mont Icons, we interview anarchist journalist Andy Fleming, an icon of Australian anti-fascist activism. Andy is known online as Slack Bastard, and his work is devoted to exposing the far right in Australia. Andy has written extensively about the links between the Christchurch terrorist and local far-right groups. The recent release of the Christchurch Inquiry Report inspired us to approach Andy for insight. This episode is a bit different. For security concerns, we conducted this interview over the phone. So, Andy, um, thank you so much for joining us at Mont. Um, What have you been up to this week? Uh, What have I been doing? Well, I've been doing the usual which is um, looking at uh, what um, members of the far right are doing online and responding to information that I receive about that and, um, I guess, interacting with uh, uh, journalists and other writers. Um, And also this week where I do a a show on 3CR in Melbourne called Yenar Pasaram, and this week we interviewed the author of a book about Casa Pound in Italy. So I've been reading about I've been reading that book and I've been reading about Casa Pound and Italian politics this week. Wow. What what has that taught you about the the state of far right politics in Italy? Well, I've been I'm familiar with Casa Pound and I guess the first thing that occurred to me when uh reading the book or thinking about talking to one of the authors was the fact that about 15 years ago, there was an activist in Melbourne uh, called Luke Connors, who was a member of the, or spokesperson for the, something called the Patriotic Youth League, which was the Australia First Party's attempt to establish a youth wing. And he adopted the handle Cusser Pound online. And so when thinking about Casa Pound, I think about how it serves as a, a model and an inspiration for fascist activists around the world, um, including in Australia. Can you talk a little bit, if you have any background on the link with Ezra Pound, uh, the poet? Yeah, it's named in honour of Pound. And because he was a, um, a big fan, a huge fan, of uh, Mussolini and fascist Italy. So he volunteered some of his uh, writing to support um, Mussolini. And I think I'd have to check. I um, found a an article that was published a few years ago detailing Ezra Pound's relationship to uh, anti-Semitic belief systems and fascism and so on, uh, which pro- provided a detailed account of his, <clears throat> excuse me, engagement with fascist politics. But... I think he was, um, you know, he's one of a number of figures. And I, I guess, you know, one thing that's important to remember in the context of a discussion of Pound and his relationship to fascism is there were uh, many artists and intellectuals and others who embraced fascism when it first emerged. Mm. Um, so it's it's important. And, and in discussing Casa Pound now with the uh, author or co-author of this book, um, she pointed out that uh, following, there was no... I guess there was a kind of attempt at denazification in Germany after the end of the Second World War, but there was no such process instituted in Italy. So uh, for various reasons, for that reason and for others, fascism remains a kind of, um, it, it's both a, uh, I guess, a, a dividing line in Italian far-right politics in the sense that 
Cusser Pound is somewhat unusual in the sense that it embraces historical fascism. It, it, it uh, you know, lords the achievements of Mussolini's, Mussolini's regime, um, but also seeks to adapt it to the 21st century, which is why it was, uh, I think there was a, a journalist who dubbed them the uh, fascists of the uh, third millennium. Mm. Um, so, and also it made me think of the, uh, the Italian uh, anarchists and other anti-fascists of the 1920s in Melbourne and throughout Australia about which uh, I think it's uh, Gianfranco Cresciani uh, has written about in the last few decades. And I find that kind of thing, I mean, I find history fascinating, but, you know, those dimensions of fascist, uh, of uh, history, I find them, you know, of particular interest, I suppose, because, you know, they were in the Melbourne context and the Australian context, the OG anti-fascists back in the 1920s. Oh, that's really cool. I mean, that, what you're talking about is uh, really, really interesting. When I was in Rome early last year, all the monuments to Mussolini were still up, and I found that really fucking shocking, you know, going to the football and seeing this huge, like, monolith structure dedicated to Mussolini. I found it really bizarre that it, those hadn't been you know, re-evaluated or taken down. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's a, an interesting history. Um, I guess the other thing that makes me think of is uh, the ways in which just in the last few years, the historical legacy of Franco in Spain is being um, re-examined and there's all sorts of court battles and other things going on there uh, to do precisely with how to approach the, you know, hundreds, thousands of memorials to Franco. And I think it was just this week it was reported that the um, Franco's family has lost possession of one of his mansions or something. So I saw it's that an report. ongoing issue. Yeah, and, yeah. and um, the it's been kind of appropriated to, to kind of tell the story um, of, of Franco's reign. And it's also um, kind of been... They're trying to rebadge it in tribute to the to the the writer that occupied it prior to it being um, appropriated by by Franco. Yeah, I mean, in that, I mean, I think of a you know um, a comrade from Spain who's no longer no longer with us, but um, his account of growing up in Spain was he didn't realise until he was an adult that his parents were members of the CNT. They completely suppressed that knowledge, so he was brought up as a uh, you know a good young Spaniard, and it was only later through his own investigations into history and to politics and, and to the history of anarchism in Spain that he discovered his own parents <laughs> were uh, radicals during that period. So that that kind of is um, testimony to the uh, ways in which, I guess, culture, politics, society adapted in Spain to uh, Franco's legacy. And also, I mean, you know, during the course of this year, we've interviewed... Uh, a number of people, but one of them was a um, a scholar from the United States who's looking at or wrote a book on um, uh, youth subcultures in Spain from the 70s onwards and the ways in which uh, following Franco's death, there was a reopening of public space in Spain to allow youth in particular to reinvestigate and to, I guess, rediscover that history and attempt to, you know, incorporate whatever lessons might be taught from that era into their own kind of cultural and political practice. 
Mm. And where did all this begin for you, Andy? Like, at what point did you start really getting interested in this? Was it something your parents kind of inspired in you or um, did did something happen in your youth that really, you know, made you pivot and inspired to, to, you know, become an activist or an anarchist? Uh, Well, it it wasn't my parents, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't, I mean, it's... uh, you know, I, I'm unable to provide too many details, but um, I remember, I think, um, I've had a, a, I guess, a desire to understand the world and uh, my, my place within it. And um, so I've had an interest, a long-standing interest in, you know, politics and political philosophy and all sorts of other things. Um, and I guess it was, you know, probably during my teenage years that I've developed a serious interest in these sorts of things. And that's just carried through, you know, into my adult life. Um, And I do remember, you know, I guess it's a different kind of environment now in the, I guess, the internet age where the kinds of things that I'm interested in are much more easily accessible. So my kind of clues as to the existence of, say, um, you know, anti-fascism in Germany was derived from reading headlines in, you know, shock horror headlines in the, the tabloid media uh, about, you know, uh, squatters in Berlin battling with, uh, you know, boneheads or, you know, uh, following the, um, you know, uh, collapse of the wall and so on. So, I mean, it's been a long-standing interest, um, but it was only around, uh, you know, 15 years or so. I guess it was a go that um, basically what happened was that a website called Fight Them Back emerged and I think it described itself as being a trans-Tasman alliance of anti-fascists or something. And it was actually, I think, inspired to launch because the Australia First Party and the um, New Zealand National Front announced at that time that they were going to form a trans-Tasman alliance. Um, and so activists here in in Aotearoa decided that something should be done about that. So this website was launched and, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. I wrote a couple of things for it. Uh, they seemed to, you know, like it and encouraged me to write more. And that's, you know, around about the point at which the blog um, became a forum for those writings and and you know, others. <clears throat> Excuse me. Your your blog's been um, very instrumental in kind of revealing what's going on right now in Melbourne and, and, and in Australia. Um, and how we got here yeah, in many ways. Yeah. Um, and um, what, what kind of inspired this particularly was the, the events of the last week, which have been quite, I imagine, have been quite busy for you. Yeah, they have. I mean, I, I still haven't managed to um, uh, read the full report, uh, but the first thing I did was examine what it had to say about the relationship between the killer and the local, uh, you know, far-right movement. And, you know, reading through that, um, you know, most of the material I was quite familiar with. Um, Just to be clear, was... we're talking about the, the Christchurch uh, terrorist attack and the Commissioner's findings. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so I mean one thing that I you know if you read the um the account given of his I guess recent evolution the recent evolution of his political views his engagement with groups like the EPF and, and so on and so forth and the Lad Society of course um you know that that that's not I was, you know, quite familiar with that. I was aware and can confirm that when um, the killer sent a kind of threat to an online user of uh, Facebook, I can confirm that that did take place uh, and police did not act. Um, And reading that uh, made me think about how, um, you know, I think it's arguable that, that the massacre did have some impact on the ways in which the police and the state has responded to that kind of material appearing online. I mean, also at at about the same time as the report was published, you know, a teenager in New South Wales was arrested and has been charged with uh, terrorism offences, seemingly on the basis, and, you know, this is before the courts and so on, but seemingly on the basis, according to police, of certain things that he posted that morning, which indicated according to them, allegedly, some preparedness to undertake some kind of act. Um, And, I mean, that kind of rhetoric is, well, it's not um, common, but it's not uncommon either. And so to the extent that one of the things that police and other authorities have to do is wade through this material and make a determination as to who's, you know, a a real threat, let's say, and those who are simply shitposting, um, it's not a straightforward task and the only thing that can really inform that is having some kind of uh, background or some awareness of the uh, history of engagement by the particular individual that's making that kind of statement and you know one of the things I do through the blog and other things is actually try and examine that history and determine for myself you know who is the person who's just you know tweeting about you know guess the kikes race war now and who is it that's more um, or who is it from among that group of that cohort uh, that's, you know, of most interest. And for me, it's, it's um, and I get, I get, you know, sent material occasionally by someone on Facebook who's appalled that someone, they've discovered someone online saying, you know, something outrageous and they bring it to my attention. And it's kind of like in those situations, I have to make a determination because there's thousands of these you know, individuals, you know, who's of most interest to myself. And I, I generally operate on the basis that, well, what kind of position does this person occupy within this movement? Do they have any influence? Are they likely to be influencing others? Um, And then attempting, if it's necessary or thought, I think it's worthwhile, trying to excavate that history and, 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 um, I guess, finding out as much about that individual and their associations as I I can. Hmm. Uh, How how do you think uh, the far right has changed in the last... Four, uh, four or five years. I feel like, or, or did, or has it always been quite a dangerous undercurrent in our society? It just has been brought to prominence now, or people are just more aware of it in the last year or so, or, or has something shifted in the community that has radicalized them further? Well, I, um, in in terms of understanding uh, far right ideology and movement in Australia. Um, you can adopt various frameworks. I mean, I, in the longer historical uh, period, I situated in terms of, um, you know, the white Australia policy. Mm. And 
there's an argument that if you compare the Australian far right to similar movements in other places, um, one of the reasons it hasn't flourished uh, is because the state has already occupied the territory that the far right normally would. In other words, the state itself in you know, it's a colonial settled state. Uh, there's, um, and, and from its inception, the, the, one of the, I guess, pillars, if you adopt, you know, someone like Paul Kelly's framework, uh, was the white Australia policy. And that's only really, it's only, in, you know, well, it's within living memory that that began to um, be dismantled. But I think that leaves a, a legacy. And if you look at the... It's not always the case, but for some of the more important white nationalist uh, political parties and groups, they try. What one of their one of the things they're trying to do is um, rehabilitate that history and to draw upon whatever sentiment, uh, whatever sympathy remains for white Australia. And I think that that's uh, you know probably a minority position, but there's still you know many people who um, view that era as being, you know, one of stability and order and, uh, you know, the, the so-called workers' paradise and so on. And they want to try and rehabilitate that and, and invest it with new life. And that's not a simple project. Um, in terms of the more recent history, I mean, I think Reclaim Australia was a key moment. And what that, how I read that was, I placed that in the context of the, you know, war on terror and so I, I knew that for many years prior to Reclaim's emergence in 2005, I'd witnessed the, the, um, um, th this kind of sentiment centred upon Islamophobia, but drawing upon, you know, wider xenophobic beliefs, I suppose, um, that this sentiment had been building um, over time. Uh, it was supported by both uh, official government policy, but also, you know, various far-right actors attempting to, you know, um, push it along. So I, I, I witnessed it as the emergence uh, from uh, principally online environment of a sentiment that had been in existence for some time. And it was kind of like a coming out party. And, you know, it was relatively small. I mean, if you compare them, you know, there would have been thousands who took part in Reclaim Australia rallies. Uh, so relative to other, you know, political mobilisations, fairly small, but nonetheless significant because it was one of the first times in recent memory uh, that a, a group of that size had mobilised on the streets for many years. And naturally, it was looked upon as being a... And you had, you know, you had groups like the EPF emerge almost immediately following the emergence of Reclaim. And that was intended to be a kind of vanguard of the movement. And what was interesting about that and why, I mean, I wrote a thing for The Guardian about it in, sometime in 2015, but uh, one of the things that was interesting to me was the ways in which uh, neo-Nazis and also Christian fundamentalists um, had thrust themselves into the very centre of that, that discourse and that movement. Um, and their intention was to radicalise it if you want to use that term, in a way that used um, hatred of Muslims to uh, further problematise, let's say, immigration and multiculturalism and political correctness and all those other kind of bugbears of the right in a way that would actually allow them to um, organise and to harness that sentiment in a way that would allow them to build in the following years. 
Um, and, you know, in, in getting back to Christchurch, I mean, one of the things that happened was, um, well, the UBF collapsed uh, after Facebook pulled the plug. You know, that was its lifeline. And it had accrued by the time, and it's in the report, I think it says 120, it might have been 160,000 followers or likes or whatever on Facebook. And that's quite an audience. So there's a real appetite for that sort of, um, and it came from outside Australia as well. So it was a, you know, a global phenomenon in that sense. Uh, but pointed to, I guess in that respect, pointed to the existence of transnational networks uh, of nationalists in various countries who are, uh, as in the case of Casa Pound, looking to one another for inspiration and support and paying close attention to one another's activities and trying to understand why one thing works in one context and how it might be applied here. Um, but I think that, you know, um, I, I guess it, you know, 2015 was a key moment. Mm. Um, it gave birth to a whole range of much smaller groupings. Is that, and, is that yeah. because of the uh, refugee crisis? Partly with that time, or yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, if you look at, I mean, one of the groups that was thrown up by this was the True Blue Crew, of which Philip Galea, who was uh, just recently sentenced to twelve years for terrorism mm-hmm. uh, in Melbourne, uh, he drew great <laughs> inspiration from. He thought they were great, but their first, I think, their first mobilisation was in Coburg in uh, twenty sixteen, and um, they had. Uh, discovered that, uh, you know, a local councillor, Sue Bolton, who's a socialist and some others had organised a rally to, you know, pretty um, standard fare, uh, free the refugees, uh, Aboriginal land rights and, and so on and so forth, you know, otherwise kind of unremarkable sort of thing. Uh, but the TBC determined, they no, they were going to take this opportunity to pro- uh, organise a counter rally. And if you look at their rhetoric at the time, it was, uh, we support... Uh, Fortress Australia. We we support uh, the locking up of uh, asylum seekers and refugees on uh, prison islands offshore. And I had some, I mean, when I look at that and and the ways in which they chose to uh, portray their action in those terms, there's a sense in which I have some sympathy for them because what they're saying or what they're responding to is actual government policy, uh, which at the time enjoyed bipartisan support. And I think one of their frustrations was, how can you, with, with some justification, although it's not straightforward, but how can you accuse us of being racist when we're just celebrating what's actual government policy? You know? um, so, uh, and, and the other thing, I guess, through the work generally is to try and examine uh, the ways in which these groups and ideas that are often considered marginal or something, the very porous nature of the border between uh, marginal political phenomenon or phenomena and uh, the political mainstream. And um, that's the sort of thing that I think needs to be paid particular attention to because it's important, but it's also potentially a point of vulnerability where you can make, when I say you, I mean we, us, whoever, can make interventions that tries to um, draw attention to those uh, similarities and those commonalities and through doing so seeks to disrupt them such that those sorts of ideas are you know, better understood as being marginal for good reason. <laughs> mm. They're subject to marginalisation and that's a constant process. So it's a constant kind of battle to kind of, you know, um, push back against this kind of stuff. You've been uh, instrumental in documenting um, 
this uh, this phenomena. So you're you're very well versed in it. I'd like to hear a little about the the kind of opposing force to, to this and over the same kind of history. What do you see as the kind of trends there in response to this, and how effective have they been in combating it? Well, I'm I'm mostly I'm I'm in Melbourne. I'm mostly familiar with um, you know things that have been going on in Melbourne. Although I have a you know I'm part of a broader network that stretches across. Australia and, and overseas. Um, I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, well, if you take the first uh, Reclaim rally in Melbourne, April for 2015, um, you know, I tried to encourage people to attend the counter rally. And the essential point was to uh, occupy, uh, in a physical sense, the uh, public space that Reclaim had declared was its territory. In other words, and that's that happens has happened previously on um, anti-racist and anti-fascist mobilisations. It's it's about um, contesting that public space, and through doing so, it's like a concrete embodiment of uh, opposition, and it has a disruptive effect. And my experience at that on that occasion and on um, subsequent uh, rallies and counter rallies was what was being encountered was a um, a hardcore of neo-Nazi and fascist and other racist activists around which had assembled hundreds, if not, you know, in different locations, several thousand sympathisers. Many of, for many of those individuals, this was, you know, this was in many cases their first public protest. Um, they'd never taken to the streets in any political capacity previously. And they experienced some shock and surprise when they turned out in Melbourne and there were, you know, hundreds, thousands of people out there shouting at them and telling them to go away. It was a real shock. And to me, it kind of, um, it, it, well, it, it demonstrated their, and, and the ways in which the event was policed. Um, and it demonstrated their kind of naivety on the one hand, uh, but also the the fact it, it was testament to the fact that there are actually hundreds, thousands, many thousands of people in Australia who are sympathetic to these kinds of doctrines, but need some kind of push in order to mobilise them such that they take to the streets and jump up and down waving, you know, their flags. So I think that those sorts of uh, counter-protest actions, um, one of the effects, and, and this is kind of like a general, I guess, anti-fascist methodology, if you like, is to... Uh, attach a social cost to engagement in far-right politics, uh, whether that's, um, you know, having uh, an, uh, not having fun when taking to the streets or being subjected to, you know, um, uh, other forms of criticism. Um, there's, a, there's a whole range of tactics that can be employed, which one of the effects of which is to try and sort the wheat from the chaff. So, Part of the idea is to to discourage those who are merely sympathetic from uh, engagement with these politics. Uh, beyond that, which which is a kind of um, you know a short term perspective, longer term, in many cases, I think you know one of the more valuable um, forms of anti-fascist activism is um, promoting literacy and education and mm. knowledge of history, and that that's engaged in by you know all sorts of people um, who, who aren't and don't conceive of themselves as anti-fascist, but necessar um, necessarily, but 
the effects of that is just to kind of encourage a greater awareness and understanding of society. And I think in general, that tends to have the effect of uh, ameliorating these kinds of attitudes. So there's lots of different approaches. I mean, you know, in the online sphere, uh, Facebook and YouTube uh, have emerged as some of the most critical venues for the promotion of these kinds of doctrines. And, you know, I guess the, it's often expressed this frustration with these corporations. They're so negligent, let's say, in terms of their kind of, you know, corporate social responsibilities or whatever. Uh, and the problem there I see is, I mean, I understand them as being essentially, you know, amoral institutions. There's no, you know, what, one of the reasons this kind of material flourishes on those sites is because um, it promotes engagement. And what these, you know, the, 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 I guess, the political economy or the, the business model of these uh, corporations is precisely to harvest data and to sell that data to advertisers. So more engagement means more data, means more capacity to sell, which means better profits. That's basically it in a kind of nutshell. Um, and it, it, it's the case that, and, and the frustration is because these are so, I mean, Facebook has, I don't know how many billions of users Facebook has now, but it, it's it and Google and, and YouTube and so on, you know, they've begun to establish and have over years a, a virtual monopoly on online life, uh, which is, um, you know, <laughs> not good. Um, and, and it does, I mean, it's not that, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is invested in the promotion of fascism. It's just like immaterial. It's whatever, you know, promotes engagement and that's that's a difficult thing to address um and you can kind of you know people like myself and others we've got little pop guns that we sometimes shoot at them and it, it you know it has some kind of marginal effect uh, you know occasionally i mean i remember you know in the immediate aftermath of the christchurch massacre the cto of facebook the um CTO, um, Cheryl Sandberg issued a statement saying, oh, yes, we, we, we're appalled and we take this very seriously and blah, 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 you know, a PR statement. Um, but it was interesting to look at, well, what's been the actual concrete effect? And so, I mean, on occasion, I'll, I'll check, you know, the hundreds, thousands and, and pages and groups dedicated to racial hatred and white supremacy and see how they're faring. Um, and some are taken down, some remain. Um, but I, it, it also, and this is, you know, also often remarked upon in the literature, it's like whack-a-mole. Who are the kind of people um, uh, providing inspiration or even um, ideological support in Australia? Well, the, the, um, the killer titled their manifesto, The Great Replacement. Um, and that was first, well, that particular version of this thesis was first propounded by a French writer. Um, several years ago but in terms of its popularization it's it's you know it's a meme but one of its chief popularizers was lauren southern um who published a video on youtube uh you know which she's since taken down but which is in circulation um which had many hundreds of thousands of views it hasn't been established that uh, you know the christchurch killer viewed it but it's quite likely i think Sorry, are you guys good to? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, and you know, essentially, what it what it re kind of resolves into is there's a conspiracy to destroy the white race 
through mass immigration of unassimilable elements into Europe and elsewhere. So it's, it's part of the whole Defend Europa thing, which is also something that Southern engaged in by travelling to Europe, joining with members of Generation Identity under the banner of Defend Europe and attempting to disrupt uh, rescue, with, rescue efforts in the Mediterranean. Um, you know, obviously we've had waves of uh, you know, people fleeing war and violence in uh, the Middle East and North Africa, attempting to way, attempting to make their way to you know rel- more safe harbours in Europe. Uh, there was a backlash against that, uh, and Defend Europe was a project intended to a political project by the far right intended to directly intervene and to disrupt those rescue efforts. Um, and in terms of the, you know, this is a, a you know um, idea that pillar that's been adopted by a range of different actors. What it also points to is the idea that there's a, this is a moment of crisis. I think that what one of the things that compelled or propelled the Christchurch killer to act and a whole range of others is uh, there's a sense that this is one of the last um, uh, moments or opportunities to put a halt to this destruction of Western civilization. And the stakes are Western civilization. Um, so major stakes. And if, if individuals conceive of themselves as being you know, soldiers in this cause, to the extent that this is a real moment of crisis, that provides uh, further ammunition, let's say, for them to undertake uh, what would otherwise be considered you know, radical acts. Um, so there's, there's a kind of political impetus um, informed in particular by these particular you know, theses, but it's part of a broader ideology which finds Europe and Western and white civilization in crisis. I mean, in, in the Australian context, I don't know that it's been published yet, but, um, you know, there was a, a, a conference on fascism and anti-fascism in Adelaide late last year. One of the papers that was presented was examining the use of the rhetoric or the term, um, I think, uh, Western civilization in the Australian parliament and trying to chart over time, I think there was a, a long-term, you know, I, I don't remember the exact parameters, but over a considerable period of time and taking note of the, the fact that in the last few years, use of that term has uh, skyrocketed. So it's the kind of concern that, you know, is being expressed both by, you know, fascist bloggers, but also in very mainstream political circles. And, and that's part of the whole, you know, if you think about cultural Marxism, or cancel culture and all these sorts of ideas and concepts that, are, you know, have gained some currency. And for some people employing it, you know, they have particular concerns which, with which I might have some kind of sympathy, but it's part of, I understand that the dangers associated with the adoption of that sort of rhetoric or those sorts of ideas is to do with the extent to which they normalise positions which are actually emanating from the far right and which serve their purposes. And that's part of their conscious project is to try and introduce these sorts of terms and ideas and concepts in such a way that their origins are obscured and their, I guess, political thrust and and, and political ramifications are obscured and render them the kind of, um, you know, such that the kinds of concerns that are being expressed by these actors begin to occupy political conversation. So rather than addressing the fact that the planet's burning and maybe we should do something about it. Instead, we're talking about, you know, I don't know, 
uh, gender neutral toilets or something. I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, it, when I think about the things that really concern me and I think should be a concern to others, it's not that sort of thing. It's more like bloody hell, we're entering into another summer. Um, you know, it's really hot. <laughs> um, a billion animals died apparently during the last, of course, last bushfire season. The, the Great Barrier Reef is dying. Uh, social inequality is rampant. Uh, these are the sorts of things that I think people should be paying attention to. Uh, these are these are real moments of concern and real crisis. This, this, the forms of crisis are being offered. I think you know both reflect the concerns of you know far right actors and proceed from their ideology, but also have the, the purpose of uh, turning people's attention away from the things that really matter. About which, if people chose to act, would have consequences for those in authority and power, and they'd rather avoid that. Were you were you surprised? Um that a lot of our conservative media companies try to deflect uh, any inspiration that Brandon Tarrant might have conjured in Australia to, to a European kind of obsession? Were you, it, does that seem to be a trend that in Australia we, we tend to, yeah, defer any kind of... Responsibility? Yeah, resp- not responsibility, and um, we we just don't acknowledge that we have these issues and and this relationship with the you know with those policies, and we kind of hark we we want to go back to that period of stability or something. Um, it is kind of ingrained in in our whole Anzac riddled um, identity or something. Am I surprised? No. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think it's given, you know, I mean, you know, this was a, an atrocious event, and who wants to stick their hand up and say, "Yeah, I, you know, I contributed." Um, so, precisely on that basis, it, it's all about becoming, placing as much difference between oneself and that act and that actor. Um, and I just, you know, of course, I, I, I'm completely unsurprised, and I fully expect it. Uh, the real question is, you know, how do you tackle that? Um, yeah, I was very interested in um, kind of asking your idea of strategy in this respect, especially if we return to your analysis of Facebook, for instance. Is the strategy of engagement there, um, is it going to uh, um, amplify the, the wider problem of Facebook's dominance or if you leave it unaddressed and uncontested, and there's a, just a wide space for, for people to have these discussions without um, kind of criticism or, or whatever. Are you basically, um, you know, allowing space to people? So um, strategically, where do you sit on that kind of, uh, is the bigger problem corporate dominance over our kind of discussions um, or these interior discussions that people uh able to have without kind of um, contest? Well, I mean, you know, um, I'm an anarchist. <laughs> so I'd like to see the, uh, you know, corporate structures dismantled. Uh, and that would kind of, if there's no Facebook, there's no Facebook, right? Um, which kind of, you know. Um, but in terms of, you know, the kinds of interventions that can be made by individuals like myself, I mean, you know, I, I do think it is somewhat remarkable that a figure like Lauren Southern has been rehabilitated and incorporated into Sky News's programming. Um, 
And so, I, you know, that that's kind of like, um, in a, it's not a litmus test, but it's kind of like, you know, it says something. And I think, you know, I mean, it's on the nose. <laughs> it's been, well, it's but, been a very busy week, I think, for you because we've got Lauren Southern rehabilitated. Um, this like uh, kind of report that's just come out and the arrest. Um, yeah, but like between, but how do you read between the lines when you have someone like Lauren Southern on Sky News? You've had this tra- this uh, terrorist attack in Christchurch. You have someone like Dutton. Uh, <laughs> you know, like uh, how do you try to make sense of that and read between the lines? Because to someone like me, and I, I mean, I'm speaking from, the, you know, as a Muslim uh, and a minority. Uh, I, I just I, I it seems so obvious that things are kind of conflating in a very dangerous way, but um yeah, you're kind of not allowed to talk about it or it makes you a lefty straight away or something. Um Well, I mean, you know, uh I, I speak from a certain situation and have a particular perspective. Um and I've, you know, worked with uh, all sorts of people um, across time. And I think where there's common areas of concern, uh, there's a basis for solidarity and uh, discussion about, you know, what to do, you know, what is to be done. Um, I mean, I, I, but in terms of Southern, like, you know, she was invited to speak at CPAC, you know, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Sydney. Mm. And then she was dropped. And it's unclear to me exactly what was the decision-making process that meant, because she was trumpeted as being, you know, one of the key speakers and then dropped and it was the organisers attributed it to some scheduling matter, which I'm not sure I believe. I think there was a certain sense in which CPAC understood that in association with one of the chief proponents of the doctrine that inspired the Christchurch killer was a bad look. Um, but that's not the case with Sky, apparently. Um, and I think it's kind of like, um, you know, my reading of a Southern situation is, for, I mean, she announced her retirement from politics and being a propagandist shortly after the massacre. And I think it might have been, I'm, I'm speculating, but I think it might have been a moment for her where, you know, she's pursued this essentially, a, you know, a grifting career, um, and it had gotten to a point where she had to make a decision about how to go forward, whether to, you know, uh, double down or take a step back. And she decided to take a step back and, um, you know, relocate to Australia and pursue a career on Sky. Um, I mean, it speaks to the kind of, you know, Sky is Murdoch and Murdoch dominates along with one or two other institutions, Australian media. And I guess it speaks to the danger of, monopolisation, the the crisis within media and journalism. Um, And those are structural things about which it's difficult, you know, as a blogger to to address. Um, But it has to do with, you know, the changing nature of Australian political economy and and global political economy and so on. So, um, you know, I I don't think there's any easy or obvious solution in many respects, I think it's just about trying to, well, in my own terms, just paying attention, uh, attempting to draw other people's attention to things and where relevant, asking them to consider, you know, taking some form of action in response. And that that's, for me, that that's the lifeblood of any kind of social movement, you know, 
movement implies moving means doing things. So, and, and the important thing in that respect is to have a, a, I get, I guess, a clear idea of what it is that you're doing, what your goals are. And if you can do that, whether you succeed or you fail, you can draw something, you can learn something from it. Um, if, if you're not sure what you're doing or why you're doing it, it makes it much more difficult. So, and, and in terms of more generally, I think, you know, um, on the other hand, you can point to, for example, uh, you know, the, the Australia Day debates launched, uh, I guess, around about this time. Um, and it's, it's, it is significant, I think, that if you look at, uh, you know, uh, January 26 events in Melbourne. Uh, there's the official state-sponsored, you know, multicultural celebration, which on some level is is fairly innocuous. It's different, principally, uh, local ethnic communities getting together, having a parade, and celebrating, you know, the good things of life. Uh, at the same time, <laughs> there's other issues with that date and so on. And I guess it, it, you know, it is the case now that in 2019, uh, 2020. Um, you'll have much larger people, much larger mobilisations uh, decrying the fact that it's Invasion Day and you know, there's no treaty and you know, all the other issues that are to do with the colonial settler state. And that has some you know, not insignificant degree of support. So um, you know, while Australia and its legacy has, you know, there is a legacy and it has an effect, but it's not uncontested. Uh, it's you know, a tribute to, I guess, the Aboriginal movement that it's been successfully able to navigate those circumstances to a point at which non-Indigenous peoples are beginning to listen more and maybe hear what's being said um, and to want to, you know, express some form of solidarity with those struggles. So, you know, it's not straightforward, <clears throat> excuse me, but, you know, I guess what I'm saying is there are some, you know, hopeful signs of, of, of certain kinds of cultural and political shifts that, potentially or have the potential of perhaps, you know, um, resulting in something vaguely resembling some kind of just outcome. Mm. So, you know, um, that that's kind of like the struggle, I guess. <laughs> mm. Another thing that I find really compelling in your work is um, the brave step to reveal some of these far-right, you know, actors. Um, when, did, when did you start doing that and um how dangerous was it in the beginning well almost immediately i mean i think one of the first posts i made was about a figure who's now departed but was a um a fellow blogger a, a fascist very active online um who was uh threatening to hurt people uh, myself and others and i wondered well who is this guy <laughs> you know? um and partly that was you know out of general interest like who, who you know what kind of person makes these kinds of threats or whatever. And also because, you know, out of personal interest, like, is this my neighbour? <laughs> <You know, laughs> how careful do I have to be? And <laughs> and also the other thing is, like, um, you know, in, in terms of the extreme right and, you know, neo-Nazi activists and, and so on, they're incorrigible liars. They're all, I mean, because they understand, I mean, the more rational among them, like Blair Cottrell and others, and they've stated as much, they understand if the Nazi tag, I mean, it has less purchase perhaps, than it used to, but still, if, if you're um, understood to be a Nazi, you have much more difficulty selling your message to the public. Um, so, but in many cases, so what that means is that many of these actors are forced to 
you know, uh, wrap themselves in the Australian flag and declare themselves patriots and blah, blah, blah. So in, in so in, in that was back when, I mean, more recently, you know, I had never heard of Blair Cottrell until April 4, 2015. And there he was surrounded by members of Nationals Alternative giving some speech about blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, who is this guy? So it wasn't that difficult, but I went online and I looked for material that he'd published. I discovered all these statements that he'd made on YouTube and the statements he was making on YouTube and elsewhere was um, Hitler was a top bloke, uh, the Jews, you know, we need to get rid of them, yada, yada, yada. And I was able to document that. And uh, eventually, you know, that that's the sort of thing that I do that sometimes makes its way eventually into media reportage. Um, and, it, and it did in this case. And part, part of the impetus for me is, you know, I, I, you know, sometimes these statements that they're making are public, sometimes they're made in more private forums, which requires a little bit of, you know, sneakiness and tricksiness in order to access. But, you know, there's quite a distinction between the sorts of things they're saying in private and, sorts of, and, and their public presentation. And so I want to, one of my motivations is to reveal them as, uh, you know, bad characters who act in bad faith. I want people to know exactly who these people are and where they're coming from. And I think on that basis, that tends to undermine their support. Not always, because there's a considerable number of people who just don't care, you know. Um, but for people who do care and who are like, you know, shit, an Nazi, fuck that. Oh, excuse me. Um, um, you know, it has an effect. And, and the other thing is, I mean, I do, um, you know, I don't, I don't publish, uh, you know, everything that I know online. I don't make it publicly available for various reasons. Um, so I don't publish people's addresses or, you know, that sort of thing. Mostly I want to know who is this uh, crazy person online talking about killing Jews? All oh, right, it's John Smith or whatever. Okay. Um, beyond that, I'm not, you know, interested. I'm, I'm not necessarily interested. I'm interested in determining those who are leading figures that I think have... Uh, political capacities because there's plenty of boneheads out there who are just you know constantly shitposting and talking about all kinds of stuff and there's there's, a, there's an army of them and you know I couldn't even if I wanted to I wouldn't I don't have the resources to be able to you know examine each and every one of them and, and so on and so forth um, but the other thing is that I guess that material can also become valuable later so, you know, the fact that, that there were some people who were paying attention to what the Christchurch killer was posting online and documented it prior to his conducting this massacre, um, that's, you know, a fairly dramatic example of the ways in which when it comes time to understand who is this, well, why did they do this? You can actually refer to material which gives you some idea of precisely who they were and what they thought. And that can inform your understanding of the ways in which these sorts of particular figures develop. And, uh, you know, I think that's useful um, because it provides material. And I have, you know, there's, there's a discussion in the record about, you know, how do you go about detecting these? What are the characteristics that might help authorities determine who among this cohort is likely to do something awful? Um, is there any way of, you know, determining this? And I think there are broad parameters. But essentially, you know... Um, what I try to do through the work is to limit the growth of these movements, to limit their impact, because through doing so, if you if you uh, reduce the number of you know recruits or however you want to express it, 
uh, the less likely you're going to have a figure like that emerge because there's just a, a you know a lesser pool of talent, let's say, to draw upon. Um, and also about making making those who are engaged in politics aware that there's a price to be paid. And if the state or other forces aren't going to apply it, well, there are you know members of civil society or however you want to conceive it who will. You know that's that's and, and that's based on the principle that you don't you know. <sighs> If you, if you look at anti-fascist organising, you know, there's a group that emerged in the US, anti-racist action. You know, it emerged from a street crew of teenagers who were battling Nazis in their local town. Um, but one of the things is that they had several principles, one of which we don't rely on the cops or the courts. We've got to take, we've got to understand it's our responsibility to protect our own communities, which doesn't mean no engagement with the courts or with the police, but it's an understanding of the you know, these are not reliable allies. Mm, and uh, the fear yeah. with that would be, obviously, that people just kind of think they can take justice into their own hands, right? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it does, yeah. It, it can lend itself to forms of vigilantism, uh, which aren't necessarily good. However, um, you know, in general, that sort of thing in the US context I'm thinking of is, and it's a different context, um, legally and politically and, and so on. So that shapes, you know, actions. But one of the things that it, they do do is, you know, dox individuals. They'll determine, okay, there's a Nazi in the neighbourhood and they've been, you know, graffitiing the local synagogue or whatever it is that they're doing. They'll determine who they are. They'll find their photo. They'll put up posters in the neighbourhood saying, did you know that, you know, John Smith at number one Main Street is the person responsible for putting all this stuff up? This is intended to be, a, you know, uh, informing the community hmm. about, you know, who's in their community. And that has repercussions for those people. Um, and, you know, um, I mean, if you look at the history, I mean, in terms of vigilantism, it's, you know, um, like um, depending on the time and the place, um, you know, I mean, one of the things I do on the blog is pay attention to what's happening in, say, Europe. And during the course of the last however many years, uh, anti-fascist activists are assassinated. They're killed by neo-Nazis. Those are the kinds of stakes. And there's been dozens. And, and, and that's just, you know, and that's to leave aside all the, you know, hundreds of racist murders by police and other forces um, and, and neo-Nazis and so on. Um, so it's, I think it's in that context that, you know, questions about... Um, extra legal activities or vigilantism need to be understood um, because, or, uh, you know, one of the things we're doing at the moment with the podcast is trying to um, get someone from Poland to talk about the situation there. And uh, the, the, the stakes for anti-fascists in, in you know, Warsaw and Poland and throughout Eastern Europe and also elsewhere, it's life and death. <laughs> if you're, um, you know, so it's not a kind of, I don't, I don't have the same kinds of, uh, moral sensibilities, I suppose, that apply in perhaps other contexts. Um, you know, I'm concerned with the safety and security of my comrades and my communities, and under I understand the lethal threat that these sorts of political forces represent. Um, and what one of the, um, you know, uh, important things is to try to think or develop ways of ensuring that these ideas and movements uh, don't become wedded to state power because once they do, that's you know very 